This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst magazine. I'm John Tolson and on tonight's show we have one of the horror greats, director Frank Henninlotter. What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? Since he burst onto the midnight movie circuit with his cult classic Basket Case, Frank Henninlotter has proven himself as one of the most transgressive talents in horror, with a string of bad taste masterpieces to his name that have included Brain Damage, Frankenhooker, and Bad Biology. Henninlotter's films are a mix of 40 second street surrealism, which often include bizarre Frank Meyer esque stop frame animation dream sequences involving bodily transformation and gooey mutant sex. Henninlotter followed Basket Case with two sequels, continuing the saga of Siamese twins Dwayne and his deformed brother Belial as they seek love in the seedy underworld of Times Square and later with their long-lost aunt Granny Ruth and her houseful of freaks. With Basket Case, the trilogy due for release in October, I caught up with Frank Henninlotter to ask him, what's in the basket? I know an awful lot of guys, Dwayne, but you're different. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's an honour to have you over to Starburst magazine. Uh, It's great also to see Basket Case, the trilogy being released uh, over here in in Britain. Uh, We're big fans of yours. Uh, from the beginning. Um, in fact, I've got in front of me a, a review uh, of the, of the uh, first Basket Case film, uh, written uh-huh. in, in 1982. Um, oh, wow. It's a review by Alan Jones. It was published, uh-huh. in, published in Starburst, issue 51, in November 1982. You know, I probably have that somewhere. Well, I thought it would amuse you to see what um, Alan had written about the film, coming, coming to it cold as he did, uh, obviously, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, this is yeah. what he says. It says, it has everything stacked against it on first appraisal. The lowest budget seen in years. Some of the worst acting imaginable. Harshly lit interiors reminiscent of the cheapest porno movies. Grainy blow-up from 16mm and other shoddy technical credits. It shouldn't work at all, but amazingly it does, and exceptionally well too. He also goes on to say that it looks like it's going to become the cult horror film of 1982, which I, <laughs> which I think is a, a little bit of an understatement considering how well it's actually done over the, over the last 30 years. But I just wanted to ask you, first of all, you know, based on what Alan Jones wrote in his review, yeah. do, do, do you think, looking back now, that you achieved what you set out to do when you set out to make Basket Case? Uh, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, it was not the film I was hoping to make because I didn't have the money to do it the way I wanted to. I had no money and no crew, and it was really just like another one of my little amateur 
backyard productions. Yet, it clicked with an audience. So, I don't know why. I don't understand what happened. Chances are, maybe if I had done it for the money I was hoping to, the film would have stunk. Maybe it wouldn't have clicked with an audience. Maybe it's very cheapness added to it. I don't really know. I, I've never under, understood the, um, uh, the success of the film, okay? Um, I sure ain't complaining, but um, at the time I was doing it, we just, I mean, my, my only goal, well, I wanted to do a better looking film. Uh, that's, but once we accepted the fact that we had no money and I foolishly went ahead with it, my only goal was, if we're lucky, we can get this shown somewhere on 42nd Street and it'll play for a week and then disappear and no one will ever see it. <laughs> and realizing, thinking that no one will ever see it kind of empowered me to at least finish it mm. without worrying about, gee, is it any good? So I was, um, I've always been startled when it uh, became such a, uh, you know, uh, a cult success so quickly because I, you know, I, I, I just, uh, you know, didn't make sense to me. Let's put it like that. Well, when Alan wrote that review in 1982 in November, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that the film had already started to become something of a cult success uh, in its midnight movie showings. Yeah, yes, it had then. Uh, um, the theater that played it in, in New York here was uh, it's about four blocks from where I'm where I live right now, and. Uh, you know, it had lines. To, I mean, it would sell out every week. It played for two and a half years. I could never understand it. I, I just never did. And I'm not complaining, but I'm thinking, you know, Alan is right. This film looks terrible. And the uh, the 35 prints looked a thousand times worse because the blow-up was done so badly and cheaply. It looked like it had no lights. It Jesus, it looked just awful. Um, I mean, I thought the 35 prints, and in fact, the, by extension, the, uh, the initial VHS releases of the film uh, embarrassed me because I thought it looked so terrible. Um, yeah, the film was, was done for no money and looked bad, but not that bad. <laughs> you know, just, just bad, you know. So um, it's one of the things that I was so happy that I could finally go back revisit the original negative, do an HD transfer, and make it look like the original 16-millimeter um, answer print that I first got way back when, which at least was bright and colorful. Uh, yeah, still the acting, you know, I mean, it's still, you know, it still had all its flaws, but at least it looked a bit better, okay? It didn't have all that grain. It didn't have all that dirt. It wasn't dark, so, uh, um, you know, uh, doing that, I, I made the um, HD transfer. That was last summer's project, to actually find the negative and do it. And I, I was kind of thrilled that, uh, uh, you know, when it was all done, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it still looks like a film that was made for $35,000. But at least it doesn't carry, um, it just doesn't look as bad. as it, it, it doesn't look as bad as it ended up looking. It looks as bad as it was supposed to look. <laughs> if that makes sense, I don't know. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I watched the film 
a couple of nights ago and it seems clear to me that it was intended to be a 16 millimeter film um yeah and that you'd you know obviously you'd started out making films in 16 millimeter and yeah. i just wondered whether you thought that that gauge the 16 millimeter format was kind of naturally transgressive in a way well, I think in hindsight, that's what helped the film. I think the, uh, you know, if if the film hadn't been set in a skid row atmosphere, the 16 millimeter would have probably hurt it. But with that 16, with that, you know, sleazy, you know, hotel and the skid row, chances are 35 may have been a little too pretty, may not have helped it. So I think you're right with that. I think... Uh, uh, they, uh, however, the truth is that I didn't say, okay, let's shoot it in 16 because the subject matter warrants it. I said, let's shoot it in 16 because I knew a friend that would let me borrow his camera so I didn't have to pay for a camera. <laughs> you know, and also, a uh, 16 millimeter film is obviously a thousand times cheaper than 35. And I, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't even, I didn't even know how to load a 35 camera, but 16, yeah, sure, I, I know how to do that. I mean, I knew if, it, if I shot it in 16, I could make the film. Um, with as minimal crew as possible. And sometimes the crew was nobody. Sometimes it was just me and the actors, you know, but uh, okay. We got through it. You know what I mean? Well, can you tell us a little bit about what you did before Basket Case? Because uh, in his review, Alan's kind of given a list of films as Son of Psycho, Son of Psycho. Well, all of those films were either, uh, I started shooting movies in 8mm, not mm. Super 8, but regular 8mm. And I would, you know, a lot of them I would abandon, some of them I would finish. The ones I would finish usually ran about an hour or more. I would put a little um, um, magnetic stripe on it so I could do uh, dub-in music and uh, dub-in dialogue, you know. And, uh, but they were never, they were movies for me to make. They were never movies for me to show. I, I made them for the joy of making them. I, did, I, I never intended them. But they were, they were you know, uh, they were very much like Basket Case. They were oddball mixes of horror and comedy and exploitation elements, and I had a lot of fun with them. And, and they were all, most of them were all um, uh, regular 8mm, and then somewhere in the 70s I switched over to shooting in 16mm and then doing 16mm sound. So... Um, it wasn't that far-fetched to do Basket Case that way. In fact, it's almost an extension of those kind of films. Well, but they weren't real. But they were never... Uh, only Basket Case was the only one I ever intended for, uh, God help us, for commercial release. Um, uh, you know, if, if um, the others were um, never intended to be shown, so they're actually crazier and, and, and they're far more transgressive, at least with Basket Case. I, I tried to have a beginning, middle, and end, yeah. <laughs> as far as I went commercially with that, you know? Yeah. I, I think the construction of the film, the storyline, is very clever. Uh, the way you kind of build up that mystery of what's in the basket and kind of keeps us watching, really, just to find out what exactly is in this basket that this guy's walking through Times Square <laughs> holding. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about, about the, 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 the screenwriting process for the film? How, how did you develop your ideas? Um, well, the, the idea came from... I was trying to think of titles for a horror film that hadn't been used yet. 
and you know, just a list randomly coming, clicking titles in my head and saying, ah, it's been used or I don't like it. When I came up with Basket Case, I had this absurd image of a monster in a basket. And I thought, well, if it's a monster in a basket, then anybody that opens it, the monster leaps out like a malignant jack-in-the-box. It just mm-hmm. struck me as so funny. It just was a, a wacky horror image that hadn't been used. So I set about writing scenes where people open the basket and get killed. But I never could figure out the plot because why would anybody walk around with a monster in a basket? That makes no sense. So one night I'm eating in Times Square, as I used to just thrive in Times Square um, in those days because that's where all the movies were. That's where 42nd Street was. So I was there every night watching a movie and I'd get some fast food in the area. And I was at a um, Nathan's Hot Dogs and sitting in the place. And uh, all of a sudden it occurred to me. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if they're brothers? Oh, my God. So if they're brothers, then it just, all of a sudden I threw out everything that I had written because I, all of a sudden I had a, a script now. And I, and I wrote it very quickly because it just kind of wrote itself. Uh, they're brothers. What are they angry about? Oh, the doctors. The doctors had separated them. Oh, easy. One, two, three. Boom, 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 boom. And uh, so it, it went very fast. It was a... Uh, once I, you know, got the idea of, well, okay, you know, this this is the the, the good brother, this is the deformed brother. Um, boy, it it wrote itself very quickly, and and I thought uh, I thought it worked. Well, I know that in your in your next film, brain brain damage uh, is actually was quite a personal story. It had a kind of, a, I suppose, a, a personal metaphor at the heart of it. But I was wondering yeah. if if that might have been the case with Basket Case as well. I mean, I know that, you know, Truffaut said the first film's always autobiographical. Do you think that's true? Of, of <laughs> no, that? no, I, I actually have a good relationship. I have uh, three brothers, and we have a great relationship. So, I, I you know, um, it was just an idea. And, uh, you know, like any good idea, uh, you can run with it. You can identify with it, you know. Um, I, I, you know, uh, there was a lot in uh, in the character Dwayne Bradley that I understood. I, I made him kind of goofy, uh, wide-eyed, innocent. Who, you know, re- is so wide-eyed, innocent that you think he may be a little touched, and he might be. But uh, <laughs> on the other hand, the fact that there's this connection, this brotherly connection, that the creature in the basket is family, uh, worked for me. I understood that, and uh, I understood the emotions with that of both. You know, I mean, anybody that's grown up with a family knows you can simultaneously love a sibling and hate them at the same time. You know what I mean? <laughs> How many times have we whacked our younger brother over the head? You know, then they fall down and you're crying because you think they're hurt. You know, so I thought all that came into play. Um, it's not specifically autobiographical, thank God, but uh, I understood the emotions there. Well, um, Dwayne comes from upstate New York, doesn't he? And, and I know that yeah. a, a lot of the characters in your films um, kind of have a suburban background. They kind of seem to come from suburban environments yeah. and kind of gravitate to to urban environments. But I just... Uh, not very much is known about your kind of upbringing in um, Long Island, I think it was. Is that, is that oh, right? Uh, uh, very normal upbringing, except that uh, I, uh, from the time I was 15, I would cut high school, get on the Long Island Railroad, and come into 42nd Street and see movies. And my grades in school were, um, uh, they, were either, they were either acceptable or exceptionally good, depending on what year we're talking about. So nobody seemed to really notice that I was not going to high school. 
And uh, um, that's, you know, that's what I did. I just went to the movies all day long. So um, that was, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, I mean, uh, we, we also had, you know, plenty of drive-ins and plenty of neighborhood theaters on Long Island that had, uh, you know, the latest American international film, the latest Vincent Price horror movie, uh, you know, of course. But there was something about 42nd Street that was so exciting to me because there were so many choices. And there were movies that I had not heard of. And the crazy double bills. And it was just a far more exciting atmosphere. Um, you know, I knew it was what was currently playing any week on Long Island, but on 42nd Street, I never knew what was going to appear. So that was me, you know, constantly coming into the city and, and loving it. And, uh, um, I, you know, I feel like I grew up on 42nd Street as much as I grew up on, on Long Island. Well, I, I noticed that I've written in my own notes that I've, I've described you as a 42nd Street surrealist. Um, <laughs> well, okay, I'll buy that. Well, I was just I was thinking mainly about the... Um, the use in a lot of your films of the jerky stop frame animation. And it's actually something that Alan Jones has picked up in, in his review from 1982. He says, using a sort of Muppet technique yeah. with, with, a, with addition of some jerky stop frame animation. B Belial is slightly rubbery looking at times, but startling, startlingly effective. I, I just wondered if you had, uh, amongst your influences, did you count some of the... The, the surrealist animators like Svank Meyer, people like that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I also love stop motion. I, I, every time I'd see it in a film, I would always be startled by it. Oh, look at that. Oh, it's, it always seems so magical. You know what I mean? I mean, how does King Kong move, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so um, in the case of uh, Basket Case, I mean, it was like you have no no money for you know, real effects. So you have to turn them into a, a puppet that at least you can move now mm. and then. And uh, as for the stop motion, unfortunately, in the first film, I did it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I am not a stop motion animator. I don't have the patience for it. So I would walk in, click a couple of frames, walk over to the camera. I did it by myself on a uh, set. I mean, I had no one there. So I'd walk across the set, move, very carefully move Belial walk back across the set, click two frames, walk back to Bilal. Well, I mean, after 20 minutes of doing that, I was moving Bilal by kicking him with my foot. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I have no patience for this. So that's why it came out so jerky and so silly. And initially, I didn't want to use it. And when I saw the footage, I thought, oh, God, this is terrible. So I just ignored it for a while. And uh, a couple of months later, I looked at it again and thought, you know, why don't I use the scenes where I can turn this into a comic effect and make it all very comical? And uh, that worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but I mean, it's some of the, possibly the worst stop motion animation ever in the history of the movies. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. You know. <laughs> Just going back to what you were saying about the film being bright and colorful, and, and sort of, it is a kind of a cartoon like film in a way, and the, and the, and the villains are sort of cartoon villains, the, 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 the dog. Oh, yeah. The, the dog. But the film. It, it takes a turn, and what makes it such a striking film, I think, in many ways, is is the way that it does become quite dark when the sort of je the sexual jealousy theme comes out, and yeah, uh, Belial, you know, rapes and murders Sharon, Dwayne's yeah. new girlfriend. And I, uh, was the was that kind of shift in the tone? Was that a deliberate thing? 
Oh, absolutely, because I realized that uh, otherwise um, you'd be rooting for murder. You know, the, the doctors were loathsome. They shouldn't have done this. And, uh, you know, it is a monster movie after all, you know. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, how do I wrap this up? Because, uh, um, I, you know, he, he, they are killing people. They've got, you know, I mean, the, <laughs> you can't just let them get away with this. So I thought, okay. And also the, 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 the sexual jealousy, uh, that made sense. That was a good way of splitting the brothers up, of, of getting that anger out, of uh, getting those crazy emotions out. I thought that was, a, you know, as opposed to what else would they have been jealous about? You know what I mean? But if they're jealous about uh, sex, oh, yeah, I, that makes sense to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was always intended there. I, I, I mean, I've heard that I went too far with killing her and that way, but fine. So what? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Who cares? You know, it's just a movie. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. You, you, sometimes you're asking, people ask me questions about my own films. I got to tell you, you're asking the wrong guy. Some, this is all very <laughs> instinctive and intuitive, and I don't. I don't sit around and, and uh, I don't intellectualize a script beyond a certain point. No, I can absolutely understand that. Um, yeah. I mean, Belial becomes kind of sympathetic again in the second part. Um, but you're still kind of playing with the kind of normality and deformity themes, but you yeah. seem to turn them on the head because yeah. uh, we've got this kind of roster of kind of what do you call them in the credits kind of indi kind of unusual individuals i think is the term yeah unique yeah. individuals unique individuals <laughs> uh, and and yeah. they they the, they become the heroes and and yeah. and it's the kind of nasty reporter and the police who become the villains yeah um, well why not well i thought it was interesting because it, it kind of reminded me a bit of Todd Browning's film freaks the way you kind of oh absolutely yeah. absolutely i i i think it's almost Ah, inescapable if you're going to do a film about freaks to not be aware of the Browning film. You're either going to have to totally run away for, from it or use it for shorthand, embrace it, realize everybody else knows it too. So look, we can cut some corners here and, and look, look, let's, you know, and use that as, as part of the story in a way, you know? Yeah. The echoes of it. And you also have the sort of, you know, the, 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 the kind of Coney Island freak show character in there i think he he runs a freak oh yeah yeah Lyle Parker. The, the one difference though is i never wanted the freaks to look like real deformed people mm. uh, i always wanted them to be uh, cartoon um to be you know surreal to be uh you know such extremities that you know they, they were fascinating to look at rather than something that you would cringe at and and uh um you know and also i don't want to make uh monsters out of you know real freaks mm. You know, I want to make monsters out of cartoon freaks. Uh, so that's a big difference. I, I never wanted any... Uh, we, You know, when we were approaching, when Gabe Bartalis and I were playing with, okay, what do we do? And he brought out a freak book, uh, of, of, you know, a book of real deformities, and I just said, okay, everything that's in this book, we're not using. Let's make a guy with giant teeth. <laughs> and, and Gabe laughed, and then we, we said, okay, that's our approach, and let's do that instead, you know? So, how do you feel about the the films being described as a trilogy now? I mean, I know I know that you weren't oh, you weren't as happy with uh, with part three, perhaps as oh, part three is a disaster uh, for a thousand and one reasons. But uh, that would take too long to, to describe. <laughs> but uh, uh, part two uh, and part one ended. I mean, they died at the end. I thought the story was complete. Um, 
you know, for commercial reasons, everybody said, oh, let's do a sequel, let's do a sequel, look, come on. Uh, so when I <laughs> agreed to do a sequel, um, you know, I thought, well, look, uh, you know, I can bring him back to life very, very quickly, but what do we do now? What's their, what's their villain? I mean, the doctors are dead. Also, I didn't want to repeat the the atmosphere of the first film. I didn't want it on Skid Row anymore. I mean, we, I already made that movie. Let me make something different. Let's, let's, let's expand it. Let's go in another direction. And I thought another direction would be they, they become part of a community of freaks. That made sense. But then, too, it's like, well, what, do they live in a haunted house, a creepy... No, no, no. <clears throat> let's go to the opposite. Let's have them live very beautifully in a, in a very elegant house. And, um, um, you know, I, that was my intention, and I was very happy with it. I know a lot of people... You know, a lot of times people want a sequel to be the same film, just to, you know, the same film over again. Nah, I, I thought if I'm going to do a sequel, let's let's just go for broken. I already made part one. Let's let's do something completely different and see if that works. So I, I was kind of happy. I'm very happy with part two. I, I like the carnival atmosphere of it. I love the colors. I love uh, I love the crazy plot. And uh, you know, I had fun. And 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 Belial finally gets laid. <laughs> <laughs> in a very transgressive sequence uh, that certainly made me sit up and take notice. Uh, and uh, and, they, and they, they both seem to um, enjoy themselves a great deal as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, they, yeah you know, that was, uh, it was a funny scene to shoot. I mean, uh, um, and I think, I think Kevin Van Hentenrich was actually operating Belial that day because we were doing it to his moaning because it had the real actress, the actress who played... The girl in that film played Eve also, and uh, and Ke- and that's Kevin. That's the recorded sound of Kevin on the set. That wasn't post dub. That was actually Kevin there going. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm putting the actors in, 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 you know, having them operate the puppet pretty much, or uh, was was a good idea because it really it really worked. It's a very funny, <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite scenes. Put it like that, you know. What's in the basket? My brother. <laughs> basket Case the Trilogy is due for release on Blu-ray and DVD on the 22nd of October. Basket Case. Friday Night Frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay, stay scared. scared. You're